You're listening to the podcast of Church of the Holy Cross in Popper Bluff, Missouri, a community of faith learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at holycrosspb.org. Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning to you all here and viewing and participating and worshiping with us online. Um, this morning, we are, we are still in the Easter season, believe it or not. Easter is not one day, but it is a season. And one thing that's unique about um, some of the readings through this season is that we look back again at the life of Jesus and we hear a little bit more about who He is and who He has told us He was, now especially post-resurrection, as we imagine Christ in the fullness of His deity and the fullness of humanity in this way. Today is a special Sunday in that sense, in that today is what they call Good Shepherd Sunday. The readings kind of pull together this image we have of Christ of being our Good Shepherd. And so today we're kind of imagining Jesus kind of looking back at His life and pulling that stuff together. Now post-resurrection that we can put it and see it in its fullness. So I'm also going to pull back some, some aspects of some things I preached on over the last few months. At the vigil, I told you the story of this guy, Thomas F. Torrance. And the question that he bumped into throughout his life is a question that I've been sitting in and thinking about since vigil and since talking about this. Here, let me just tell you the story again real quick. So Thomas F. Torrance is one of the greatest theologians we've had in the, in the middle part of the 20th century. He uh, translated Karl Barth's magnus, magnum opus. He, he worked with him real close and, and did some incredible things, incredible pedigree. But here's the story that I want to tell you about from him. From 1943 to 1945, he took a leave from his parish to become a chaplain in the military during World War II. He was never a combatant himself, but war and death surrounded him. At one point, his platoon came under heavy fire, and he and another soldier were the only ones to make it out alive. He came across a young soldier, scarcely 20 years old during this battle, who was mortally wounded. The soldier looked up to him and said, Padre, he asked Torrance, is God really like Jesus? Torrance assured him, he is the only God that there is, the God who has come to us in Jesus, shown his face to us, and poured out his love to us as our Savior. And as he prayed and commended the soldier to the Lord, he passed away. A few years later, back in peacetime, back in England, one of his parishioners in Aberdeen, a dying elderly woman, asked him the exact same question. Father, is God really like Jesus? Jesus. That this doubt arose in the hearts of the faithful, Torrance uh, was, was very disturbed and, and, uh, and focused much of his research and study and his explanation and his ministry in showing other people that the God of the universe has actually revealed himself fully in this person of Jesus. The question of the dying soldier and the woman suggested to Torrance that people believed that there was another God behind the back of Jesus that may have been pulling strings uh, in an unknown place. And so at the vigil, I asked the question, could it all be true? And today, 
If we move further into that question, it is back to the same question of these two dying people that they met at their their last moments. Could God really be like Jesus? One other thing that I want to remind us of are a set of axioms that I've I've been dripping here and there over the last few months. uh, A few few months ago, I preached on the first axiom, which is this, that God is always present and at work. You may remember that. God is always present and at work. And remember what an axiom is. It's just this, it's a self-evident or necessary truth. Sometimes it is so obvious that we just, yeah, duh, and move on. And then, you know, but it's a little different than a cliche. Cliche is like, a, a caricature of a truth. An axiom is which a basic truth of which other truth can be understood and built and life can be lived. So the first axiom was God is always present and at work. The second one I want to tell you today, and all these axioms come from my friends at Gravity Leadership. They, um, that's a whole other conversation, but this is where these axioms came from. Axiom two today on Good Shepherd Sunday is this. God is like Jesus And Jesus tells us that he is the good shepherd. He is the good shepherd. So if the question that Torrance was... The answer is yes, of course, and we have to understand that to mean that God himself is like the good shepherd. And sometimes the best way of understanding these kind of truths or to get down to the root of it is... truths uh, of, of the faith or rejected the church, and I, I start dialoguing with them, I'm like, oh, oh yeah, I'm not believing that, 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 that you're talking about. So this morning, let's look a little bit at these false gods, what Jesus is in text, what is this? Yeah. 
broke my own knees, right? I met the consequences of my own actions and my own behavior and beliefs about life around me. And what I found is that when I hit that bottom and decided to pay attention to the God who promised to always be present in a word, he was there ready to be found by me. It's a very, it's a nuance, but it's a very different image of how God has created our needs in the Jesus died for nothing. These kind of approaches are the tactics of the enemy, not of someone who claims to be a good shepherd and a good God. And what I see sometimes is that we miss these things when we, we, we miss how we view God. But if we pay attention to a little bit of how we behave with other people around us, sometimes that is a mirror to the type of God we really believe in. Do we believe we have to be the demanding judge? relationships in our life, when things don't go quite how we wanted or anticipated, when we're met with disappointment or anxiety, that we have to take control of the environment and steer it through retribution, manipulation, and control. And the anxiety we experience there is showing us that we really believe that's the way God works in the world, therefore, I have to work that way too, because that's the only way things are going to this is the demanding judge. The third one is this, the deterministic micromanager. This is kind of similar to the demanding judge. Looks like the projectors have problems. The deterministic micromanager. This is, we hear this sometimes when we say, oh, I guess that just wasn't God's will for my life. Or I have to find God's will for this particular whatever, and we create anxiety around making sure we stay in step with the specific narrow plan of, of God's will as if it's just this vague thing that we have to spend our life discovering. Or we say things and we hit hard, we try to put platitudes over the hard things of life, right? God is in control. And we expect that to, to bring us comfort. But Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers said this way, he said, there is no coercion in God, but he always bears goodwill towards humanity. There is no coercion in God. So it's not so much that there is this narrow, specific will that God has for the for where we live, how we live in our life, but yet he is there walking beside us as a shepherd, guiding us in the path of straight right? So in this view of the term of God seems ruthlessly committed 
to structuring every aspect of our life. But instead, what we see of Jesus is that he's ruthlessly committed to empowering people to do what they truly want to do. God doesn't want mindless robots that he can control, but mindful disciples he can empower. So remember the stories of like Judas. What did he say of Judas at the Last Supper? Go do what you're going to do, but do it quickly. Often Jesus is sad to see the people that, that come up to him and don't want that kind of open-ended life where it's walking with Jesus day by day and learning to become like him. That ignites also our own desires. Or the rich young ruler. Remember the rich young ruler come to him, and, and he knew something wasn't want, quite right. He wanted this, the hard, clear structure of rigorous faith that he could check the marks off, the boxes off on, on his, his time sheet. And Jesus sent him away sad. He goes, yeah, if you want that, just go sell everything that you have. And he went away sad. God allowed him to do that. Jesus tells us that he is the good shepherd. So it's not like he's manipulating each moment like a, like a mule, right? We've got all these animal analogies today. Psalm 32 says it this way. I will instruct you and teach you about the direction you should go. I'll advise you and keep my eye on you. Don't be like some senseless horse or mule whose movements must be controlled with a bit and bridle. Don't be anything like that. The pain of the wicked is severe, but faithful love surrounds the one trusts in the Lord. God here through the psalmist is telling us to not be like a mule who must be controlled by outward uh, coercion and manipulation and pain, but instead to submit our desires to God to be molded into his image. Psalm 23, which was our psalm this morning, beautiful, isn't it? Gives us this incredible image of still waters and peace and a God who puts a table out. But even in this, sometimes the, the translation can confuse us about how God makes us lie beside still waters. I understood that as, oh, you know, you, you either take time for things like Sabbath and rest or God's going to pray for your needs again, right? That's not the kind of God we hear. Listen to this. One of my professors from Fuller, John Goldingay, a professor of the Old Testament, his translation of Psalm 23, listen to how he writes this. My shepherd being Yahweh, therefore I don't lack. He enables me to lie down in green pastures. He then leads me to the settled still waters. He turns my life back. He guides me in faithful tracks, well-worn tracks, for the sake of his name. Even when I walk in a deathly dark ravine, I'm not afraid of the bad fortune because you are the one who's with me. Your club and your cane, they comfort me. He enables me to lie down in green pastures. This is much more like a shepherd teaching us how to be led and to lie down in green pastures. And what I've bumped into over the years and I found this uh, a couple years ago, it, it, the, the struggle in naming what I want, right? Oh, well, maybe this isn't the struggle for you, but I, I noticed when any time I would be bumped into the question, what do you want in this circumstance? That would create great anxiety in me, right? It was this fear that 
I don't know, and still putting words to why that fear is there, but I think it's because those desires had often been used to manipulate and control. Because if you know what somebody really wants, you've got power. And so the fear of stepping into what I want or to, to, to take that want and articulate it and hold it up to the light of God and allow him to mold and shape my desires so that I find my end in him and not the fulfillment of desires is how God leads us. God's intent for each of us is that we should become the kind of person whom he can set free in the universe empowered to do what we want to do as we have been molded into this image. The next one and the last one of the, the, the wrong views of God is the doting grandfather, right? This is the, the other two flipped on its head. So either you fall into the other two, the camp of the other two, the deterministic micromanager or the, the, the judging deity, or you fall into the, the doting grandfather, right? This is Every wish that I have, God is going to give me. It's the latter half of Psalm 23, divorced from the upper half of learning to be led by still waters. It's the belief that fullness of life, that the good life, is only found in the fulfillment of my desires. That if for some reason or another I have to deny desires, or I learn that that desire is not a good desire, or it is in the abundance of mammon or things or stuff, this is the lie of the doting grandfather, the image we have of God. This is not a path to freedom, is what we often think, that if I can fulfill all my desires, that if I got that lotto ticket and money was no longer an issue and I could fill everything that I need and want, this instead is tyranny. This is the domination of our own desires. The only altar we find in life is that of our own desire when we believe and have an outlook of life is that this is the God that is, is, is in the world. In the uh, Gravity Leadership book uh, with my friends that when we work through these and kind of break them apart, they said it this way, God isn't after killing our hearts or giving us everything our hearts ever wanted. Rather, God is working to help us own and name our desires, listen to this, as a meeting place for him. Then we can discern that desire with God and hold it up to the kingdom of God. It's really important. I don't want you to miss this. As a meeting place with him. It's when we learn to take what we see as a desire and hold it to the light of God and converse with him about where that is coming from and how we can find the fulfillment of that desire in the kingdom of God with God, that is where God often meets us. So these are the ones we bumped into, right? The distant deity, the demanding judge, the deterministic micromanager, and the doting grandfather. Think about which one you might often uh, hear in your own life. As we now turn and look at God is like Jesus, the fifth one. This is what I want you to hear this morning. This is a statement from Michael Ramsey, former Archbishop of Canterbury, whose feast day was actually yesterday. He said this, God is like Christ, and in God there is no unchristlikeness at all. God is like Christ, and in Him there is no unchristlikeness at all. Jesus tells us that He is the good shepherd. 
So let me be clear. Each of these four wrong views about God, you can go to Scripture and find somewhere. Right? You can find God as a demanding judge, or a grant, or whatever. Each of these, if you look hard enough and listen with a particular ear, you can find those in Scripture. That makes it a little difficult. But if we know Jesus as the image of the invisible God, as what some have said is what God has to say about himself, then all of a sudden everything else has to fall in line with the image that God has given us in the person of Jesus Christ. So that means when we look back through the Old Testament, we have to look through the person of Jesus Christ and who God has revealed himself to be in that person. So Archbishop Lazar, an Orthodox Archbishop, said this way. He said, every scripture that says something about God must bow at the living God that came in the flesh. Because that is the fullness of who God has said that he is. And he says things like, I will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick. So as Jesus said, the hired hand is not who he is. He is not like that. And he says, I will not break a bruised reed or smoldering or wick. If you've spent time in the church at all or in the world, you'll, you've seen fallen pastors and the damage they do. Or, or, or just recently we had one in Malvin that caused a huge uproar by the things that he was saying from the pulpit. And I hear people who are so disturbed and, 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 and angry at the church when they hear these things. And if you spend any time in here at all, you'll find that the people that often stand and do things up here and wear dresses, we're going to let you down. We're going to fall back into our old views of God, of demanding judges and, and doting grandfathers or deterministic micromanagers. I would ask you to remember that we are not the good shepherd. Please do not confuse people who are in authority over you in your life, whether bosses or pastors or, or parents, because we pick up most of these ideas from the relationship we have with our parents. That's just the way we're structured. Understand them to be hired hands. And look to he who says that he is the good shepherd, the only one who's claimed to be the good shepherd, to be the one who is really there walking beside you and shepherd. Your children will project onto God the parent that you are. Apologize often. Own your failures. Because when we project ourselves as the all-knowing, omnipotent, always good shepherd, these images get projected in another area that we didn't want them to. Verse 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Another way this is translated that I've heard by another archbishop was, I am the, the shepherd, the beautiful one. Isn't that interesting? Some, somehow when you really dive down to Hebrew, it means something like the shepherd who is the beautiful one. If you have bumped into this, these struggles in the church, or for whatever reason you're carrying a wound or a pain in your life, that you don't feel like God must be safe. Or that the church is not a place that you can fully live into and be vulnerable and say, I would ask you to look again at whatever it is that intrigues you about Jesus. Because most of the time when I hear these stories, 
when we start talking about the person of Jesus, there is something there that is still seductively intriguing. Hold on to that. Dig deeper into what you find beautiful in he who says that he is the beautiful one, the good shepherd. Jesus then says in the next sentence, I know my own, and my own know me. So like last week, I uh, had a meet. I've been put on another uh, uh, committee at the diocese that I'm really excited about, a creation care ministry. I did say another one, didn't I? Yeah, I, that's the, kind of the Episcopalian way. Extra committees. There's always plenty of committees. But I had a, a, a 5.30 meeting with the bishop that I was super excited about. Left another meeting early to go make sure to get ready for this. Well, in my phone, I put 6.30. And logged in at 6.25 only to see that I had missed the meeting because it was at 5.30. What did ha- immediately happen to me in that anxiety? Here you go, right? This is how you're going to do. You're, you weren't paying enough. This is the demanding, micromanaging judge. You should have been paying attention more. You should have, should have, I was shooting all over myself, <laughs> right? It was this, I just... Thing. And I felt, I remember thinking as well, well, the bishop's now going to see that I really don't have what it takes, right? That's what he's really thinking. So I was projecting this idea onto the bishop, and what I realized in preparing the sermon was like, oh, I really have the image of God as being a demanding judge. That he's there with the gavel, ready to kick me out and condemn me as soon as I show that I'm not good enough, that I'm not competent enough, or that I don't have what it takes. But it would have been real easy and quick for me to jump over that moment of reflection, that Kairos moment, as I say, and to go on and and do something else or to to perform better for the bishop the next time to correct that other idea. The important thing here is to notice how we view God, to notice in those hard moments, to take the time. So this is the embodiment. This is how I want you to embody this passage in the sermon this week. I want you to take time to notice. This, te- this means that you have to notice that you're not noticing. Right? So here's how we do this. The next time that you bump into an anxiety or a situation that you're disappointed or a situation that you feel like, oh no, I have to control this. Pay attention to your body. When you have the racing mind or the, the tightening chest or the, the churning gut Pay attention to what's going on in your body and ask, step back, take a breath. What God am I believing is present in my badness here, in this struggle here? Is it the demanding judge, the micromanager, the doting grandfather? How do I need to respond to this? If you all of a sudden feel like you need to control this situation and tell this person how it is, pay attention, take a breath, step back. For me, it's the racing mind. When my mind starts running nuts and I start coming up with all kinds of uh, uh, statements and, and how I'm going to straighten this person out or how I've got to control this situation and manipulate it and jockey for position, I know that I'm experiencing anxiety because I feel like I have to control that situation because God's not good at present. Pay attention. A.W. Tozer said the most important thing about us is what comes to our mind when we think about God. What is it when we how do we how do we think about God? So very seldom do we think about the image we have of God. I would ask you this week, 
Just take it for a week until Sunday. And sit back and think and reflect on what kind of image you have of God. How do I imagine and experience God responding to me in those moments? Where do you need to, in light of that, turn and repent? Because that's all repentance is. Repentance is turning towards the kindness of God. It's not making appeasement to God. It's turning towards God in kindness. The kindness of God. That's what we're doing. Take this week and notice what's going on in your bodies and how you're responding to God in your anxieties. I would love to hear about it. Email me, call me. Come to church next Sunday and tell us about where you bump into the wrong images of God. And I think that if we take time to notice those, God has told us that he's present and at work and that he'll meet us in 